you know, now we had uh, the alarm boxes in downtown Charleston when I first went in and, uh, you know, game whale boxes would come in all the time. And we had a big uh, company that I was in. A lot of all the companies really had a big board up uh, with all the box numbers and where they were located. And um, you had to assign watch. Uh, we did watches uh, 24 uh hours a day and basically your job was to sit at the desk or be within 10 feet of it and uh somebody came in you had to put your hat on and greet them uh basically that kind of tradition has gone away too but uh um, you had to count the bells when they came in and the ticker tape uh, would punch the holes in there and if it was your first run district uh, then you had to call out the house Welcome, everybody, to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. Uh, and joining me today with, I'll, I'll call it co-hosting duties, uh, from Episode 6, uh, returning guest, uh, Chief Keith Brower, from the, retired from the Loudoun County uh, Fire Service up in Northern Virginia. Keith, good to see, see you again. you guys. And uh, the, the guest, and Keith kind of helped uh, introduce me to, to today's guest during a conference. Uh, shoot, it's been probably almost two years ago now that we were there. Um, and I just started this podcast and we we're talking about history and, and kind of legacy and legends in the fire service. And, uh, he introduced me to this gentleman and, uh, this, this fellow told me his, his family has been in the Charleston fire department since it started. And, uh, you know, I thought how many years ago was that? And I found an article in the paper and I thought this is pretty interesting. It says, uh, as, as this gentleman was retiring, his, his great-great-grandfather was an officer and a veterinarian for the department from 1882 to 1916. So uh, his, his family history goes back in the Charleston, South Carolina Fire Department for many, many generations and continues today with his son. And I'm going to say welcome to the current assistant chief from the Folly Beach Fire Department in South Carolina, Chief uh, Raymond Lloyd. Chief Lloyd, good to see you. Good to see y'all. Glad to, glad uh, to be here. Thanks, thanks for joining us. I, I've been wanting to do this for a while and have a conversation and uh, uh, kind of chat about a little bit about history. But um, we were talking before before we really started this uh, that uh, you know technology's been a big thing in your history. Um, you know, you're talking about the game well alarm boxes and and standing watch on a desk and counting the number of bells to know where the where the crews were going to respond to. But uh, let's go back a little bit even further than that and and talk about how you personally got involved in the fire department. Was it truly a family tradition or was there something else that drove you to the fire service? Yeah, well, it was a family tradition. Uh, before the uh, paid department was formed, uh, we had volunteer uh, houses in the city of Charleston, uh, volunteer departments, and they were kind of locked into uh, ethnic backgrounds. They had the German house, uh, the Irish house, you know, pretty much in that line. And my great, great grandfather was an officer in the, uh, Aetna house, which was the Irish volunteer house. And in, uh, 1881, the city of Charleston, mayor Courtney was, uh, the mayor decided, uh, 
he needed a, a professional fire department, basically, and, and kind of do away with some of the uh, volunteers. And so he uh, formed the uh, fire department, but it was now under the police department's uh, authority. And the reason why he did that was uh, because of the arguments that chiefs would have. Uh, he told the police chief, hey, we're going to start this fire department. We're going to now bring these guys in. And if you have any problems with them, lock them up. So, uh, you know, our Charleston Fire Department in our patches say 1882 for the original forming, but it was actually 1881 under the uh, police department for the first uh, couple of months. Then in January of 1882, we became our own separate uh, department uh, away from the police department. Well, I, I so bet there's a couple, couple of stories in those months in late 1881. I, I can't told. believe there was arguments and things like that. That just doesn't seem characteristic. Um, wow. Okay. Good stuff. But, you know, uh, like I say, my great-great-grandfather uh, was in that house. He was an officer there and um, uh, basically came over in the department. His uh, profession was he was a veterinarian, uh, ran, uh, ran a racetrack here in Charleston, uh, had some horses. So he, he came over into a paid department and uh, was a veterinarian for the uh, department uh, up till his death in uh, 1916 uh, era. He was still, still an active yeah. member of the department. So, and the way I claim uh, my generation or history there is my great-grandfather, which is my great-great-grandfather's son-in-law. Son-in-law, okay. Actually came in the department at that, you know, Couple of couple of years after that, and uh, he was here until uh, nineteen uh, twenty six. Uh, he was a captain uh, back then. They call him foremans instead of a captain. He was a foreman, and um, he was one of the last few that could run a steamer, horse drawn steamer. So it was still in service, or still uh, as a reserve reserve piece all the way up to where, uh, when he retired, you know, and then of course I had some, uh, great uncles, uh, in the department. Uh, my father, uh, act, uh, joined the department after world war two, uh, came home, uh, went to work on the department and, uh, he rose to the rank of a captain and, uh, uh, left, uh, before retirement age, he left uh, to go to work for the post office. But uh, I still had a great uncle, uh, in-law, and a couple of cousins on the job. Uh, I say cousins, they were my father's first cousin. So I guess they were my second cousin. I don't know how that family yeah, tree works. Well, higher math, I call it, just figuring that out. We were related for sure. Yes. You know, so uh, when I came on the job, there, you know, they were there and actually uh, – one of my great uncle-in-law, uh, I guess the second week that I was on the job, I was sent to his station as a detail. And when I got there, he was he was standing there in a pair of overalls, uh, you know, and uh, he said, where have you been? And I said, well, uh, yeah, they didn't call me till now, tell me to come. And he goes, well, next time, he kind of punched me in the arm, said, next time, don't be late. And when he walked out the door, um, I kind of looked at the captain. I said, well, What's his problem? And he go. He was retiring today, and you were oh. his relief. 
Uh-huh. And he was mad that you were late. And I said, well, I was at my station on time, but they didn't tell me to come here until, you know, 830. So you got you got him a couple of bonus minutes on duty to, to finish. Yeah. Wow. And so that's how I kind of fell into it. And then I've I had 40, almost 45 years with the department. And then my son now, youngest son is on the job. And uh, I'm kind of proud of him. He just made uh, captain here uh, this last wow. this past year. Congratulations to him. Yeah. What station is he at, Chief? Uh, he's at Station oh, yeah. Eleven, which is on Savannah Highway, yep, right next to the new station, Super site. Yes. Uh, now he's on the uh, light and air truck. Uh, basically, uh, they kind of put him there. He wasn't too happy at first, but you know, I kind of told him. I said, you know, think of this. Now you go to all the fires because they call call you for all that. I said, so you get to go to all the fires. You don't have to answer any of the medical calls or any of the false alarms. Yeah. So I said, do your time. And then when it's time, you think you uh, want to come off, you look for a good place and uh-huh. put in for a transfer. So um, I, I got a I got a question just from the standpoint of the downtown area. I think there are 15 stations now um, or so. I know Station 14 opened up in uh, Carolina Bay a couple years ago. Yes, sir. But, um, you know, kind of back in the day, most of the stations, I assume, were downtown. I know the strip there on Savannah Highway. But in particular, the what I call the – when I hear Charleston Fire Department, I immediately think of, you know, the dome doors, the – whether it's the Wentworth Street Station or the Meeting Street Station, how many of those stations um, were there of that design and how many are still in operation? Uh, well, the uh, first station that was built uh, was actually built uh, station number one, which was on down by uh, Meeting Street, uh, 116 Meeting uh, by Queen Street. And that was the uh, main headquarters uh, for a good while also our maintenance shop, and had a uh, bell tower in the backyard. Um, we had a couple of bell towers, and uh, firemen had to stand watches in that, uh, kind of mm-hmm. like uh, the forestry service. You looked out over the city. If you saw smoke, uh, you used a telegraph uh, ticker to tick the other tower for them to line it up, and uh, then they would then turn out a, a bell service, uh, you know, the, the notified of uh, department, but that was the uh, first one was built, and that was built right after uh, the earthquake in uh, wow. 1886 when Charleston was devastated. Uh, and then the second one was meeting in Wentworth, which was called Central Station. Uh, it housed at that time four engine companies. Yeah, uh, it sat on the corner. Uh, that was built in 1887, also, and then. Um, Cannon Street, which housed two engine companies and a battalion chief, uh, was built about 1888. And then from there, all the older houses that were volunteers kind of went away. And then I guess our next station would have been Station 8, which is uh, Yuji Street. And that was opened around 1902, um, I believe. So they kind of moved up and, you know... I want to go back to this uh, this tower concept. You say you, you say there's one tower that's looking out, and you see you see something burning, or a column of smoke due north. 
and you tell the the other tower, hey, I see a column of smoke that's north of me, and they say, okay, it's east of me, do then they use that kind of uh, triangulation line to go, okay, it's probably on this block or at this intersection, that's where you send the crews. Is that how that happened? Yeah. That, that's how that kind of worked out uh, from uh, from my understanding, from listening to my father and them talk about it. Um, the bell, the bells, uh, they used to ring it uh, in Charleston at noontime. So people could set their watches wow. pretty much. So you kind of listen for the bell around noontime. And I was a small kid. I remember, remember hearing that. And, um, I, you know, I guess that kind of went away. Uh, they rang it for uh, major storms, major uh, events uh, that was going to occur, um, and it, it just stopped for a while. And then the last official time that I could remember it ever ringing was uh, when uh, Congressman Mendel Rivers, he was a congressman from Charleston area for a long time. He passed away. They toned the bells for him. And they kind of went silent for a good while, and then... After 9-11, uh, the first year, uh, Chief uh, Rusty Thomas was our chief, and we were trying to figure out how we could uh, uh, pay respects uh, for the memorial for 9-11. And uh, I, myself and a couple other guys came up with the idea of uh, ringing the, the bell. And uh, we kind of hashed it around and uh, went to Chief Thomas. He gave us an okay. And I had a couple companies come down and we set up a, a little uh, ceremony type thing. And I took six guys up on the tower with me and we toned out the bell uh, 343 times for each one. We started exactly at uh, 950, uh, I think 958 when the first tower fell, because that's when we felt officially that we had lost uh, Right. all those members pretty much so right. we did that for a good while um actually for about 10 years and then uh, uh we unfortunately we had a new chief come in and she decided not to do that you know so we stopped how, how did the community the react how did the community or? react to the bills were they very supportive they were um you know the the first year we had uh I would say maybe about 50 people standing out uh, listening uh, that I could see at the time. Uh, the second year, the crowd uh, was even bigger. Uh, we kind of uh, set the tone by uh, right there at uh, 9.57, uh, blowing us, had an engine company down there, uh, setting on their federal queue, siren for one minute. And then let it off. And then as it died off, we started toning out. So it was perceived and we had a, a lot of people that would uh, come right. wow. to watch that. What now, the headquarters you? eventually moved uh, to, to Wentworth, correct? Yes. They did that in uh, nineteen seventy. And then they moved to King Street where they are now, correct? Yeah, yes, sir. Uh, they moved up the station nine. They built that uh, station, and uh, we were really running out of space. Uh, you know, Wentworth Street uh, uh, guys were sharing offices. Uh, you know, we had two or three desks in the same office. You know, so we just kind of ran out of room, and 
uh, from what I understand now, they're running out of room again. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been to Charleston a couple of times, and it's it kind of rem, reminds me of that old southern uh, city. It's on the waterfront. There's a huge, um, you know, shipping uh, influence in that community. Is give me kind of an idea of what the fire department service is like. Is it a strictly an urban uh, setting, or do you have any kind of suburban communities that that the city serves, or or uh, does it go out from there? All right. Uh, we do uh, city of Charleston. Now, uh, don't hold me to the exact square footage, but uh, I think we are like uh, 112 square miles of Charleston County that the city covers. Uh, we have the Peninsula City, which is the old city downtown. Uh, we have uh, West City Ashley. Uh, we call it West City Ashley. It's actually going south <laughs> on 17. We're on uh, James Island, which is uh, kind of dropped south of that, and Johns Island, which are uh, urban, uh, rural areas. And then we go out on Daniel Island, Cane Hoy area, which is actually across the Cooper River uh, on the other side of Mount Pleasant. And uh, we've got uh, three, four companies now uh, out that way, you know, to cover that area. And that's kind of a rural area. Uh, um, area that's coming up, becoming a big subdivision uh, growth area. So that, all, all that area road uh, down to Bees Ferry, where they're putting up tons, it looks like yes. tons of apartments and things right in that uh, quadrant area. Is that still the city or is that? I'm going to say uh, a lot of it is in the city. Uh, there is a... a Another department out there, small uh, volunteer department, uh, Kane Hoyt uh, Fire Department, that covers that some of that area, but most of that's uh, been annexed into the city and being uh, developed. So uh, before I left or retired from the city of Charleston, uh, I'll tell you, when we first annexed over there, Chief Wilmot Gufty was the chief of the uh, Charleston Fire Department. And he actually... Uh, sat and talked with a lot of us and uh, he called us his boys. Uh, so he said, boys, I'm going to tell you that we're going to have more stations in the Daniel Island, Kane Hoy area than I'll, that we have in the downtown area. And we kind of all kind of smiled because that was all, you know, rural farm area, wood, wooded area. And, uh, you know, his uh, foresight. Surprise, surprise, right? Coming true. He was a, he was a good prognosticator. Yes. Well, you did. Uh, you said 40, 44 plus years in Charleston, and then uh, now you're in Folly Beach. Am I saying that right? Folly Beach is it? Folly, Folly Beach, Beach, South yes, Carolina. Tell me a little bit about Folly Beach and uh, that department and, and how you're working there. Uh, well, uh, when I retired, uh, I was called. Uh, I guess the very next day that I had retired from Charleston. Uh, a uh, gentleman called me and said, uh, would you be interested in a job working out here at Folly Beach, uh, helping us out? And I kind of turned him down. I said, mm, let me uh, see what <laughs> how retirement life is going to go. Uh, you, know, was, you know, so I, I kind of begged off of it. You know, I, I said, I'll, I'll think about it. You know, I didn't close the door completely, but um, a couple, couple of months went by, uh, January February, and uh, I ran into the uh, mayor 
uh, Folly Beach uh, in Walmart. Me and my wife were in there. Uh, we had gone out to dinner. It was late in, uh, in the evening. We stopped by to pick up some things. And uh, he said, oh, I thought you were going to come out and give us a hand. And uh, I said, well, Your Honor, I'm not interested in a full-time position. Uh, I said, I, uh, I would come out and help you maybe two or three days a week. Um, he said, okay, great. He said, um, I'll have somebody call you. And when he walked away, my wife kind of said, well, I think you put your foot in your mouth there. Uh, so, uh, I said, ah, well, that nothing will happen. You know, uh, I'll wait before we left Walmart, the, uh, deputy chief out there, uh, the public safety called me and said, I just talked to the mayor. You come out tomorrow, which was Friday. I said, well, hold on a second. Glad Maybe to have you on board. I'll come out Monday, come out Monday and <laughs> talk to you. So uh, I went out and he said, what are you interested? And I said, I'll, I'll come in and work, uh, you know, three days. I'll give you three days and uh, see where it goes from there. Do, doing what, Chief? Doing doing what? Working three days doing yes. what? Oh, I'm uh, Assistant Chief of Operations. I'm actually uh, – I uh, do some of their training for them, some of their inspection for them, uh, a lot of their paperwork. Uh, I'm in the process of revamping or re-viewing uh, all their SOPs. Uh, some of them were really uh, in a poor shape, but uh, not any fault of theirs, you know, because they were a volunteer department before, uh, and they're now starting to come into mm -hmm. a paid uh Era. How how big is that department? How many stations? How many staff volunteers? We just it's just one station. Uh, you know, Folly Beach is uh, only six miles long and uh, about five blocks, six blocks wide. We sit right on the ocean. Um, you know, but the the guys uh, that we have out there and girls, we have a couple of uh, ladies uh, working for us. Uh, they do a pretty good job. Um, they really are. Uh, required to do not only fire, but EMS, uh, water rescue. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of things that are going on out there, uh, with, is that, uh, primarily a residential community or a vacation spot or it, it is residential and vacation. It's a lot of, uh, now, uh, people are buying some of the older houses out there and, uh, I call them, they're making McMansions oh, wow. out there. You know, tearing them down and building uh, million-dollar homes and then renting them out. So right now, Folly Beach is in a, in a voting uh, state where they're going to either limit it, uh, the renters coming out because they're losing the uh, sure. residents. They're moving out. Wow. You know. Hmm. Um, yeah, different transition there. So, um, you know, after, you know, almost 50 years of, uh, of fire service has got to be a couple of calls in your history that, uh, that you look back on and were, were like, yeah, I'm, I'm, that was a good call. That was a fun call to be on. And then there were some that weren't so much, uh, any, any of those two scenarios kind of come to mind? Uh, yeah, there's a, you know, a lot of them in my career, but, uh, you know, one that comes to mind that kind of spurred me on, uh, for the city of Charleston, I was not the first, but one of maybe a handful of uh, EMTs. Uh, and what kind of spurred that on was we had a fire in downtown Charleston, uh, two houses uh, close together. 
uh, dumping a lot of water, basically. And after the fire was over, we were doing overhaul. Uh, somebody said, there's a guy laying between the two houses. So another uh, fireman and I walked back. Guy was laying in uh, ankle deep water uh, for us, but he was laying down and uh, basically said, hey, guys, help me up and give me a cigarette. You know, so we kind of set him up and he said, somebody beat me up. And he had basically uh, an ice pick sitting in his chest and kind of looked at it and no blood, really. It was just, you know, it was sitting stuck in his chest and it was moving, uh, pulsing uh, with his heart. It's not supposed to be there. Yeah. So we kind of like, okay, are you all right? And uh, he was like, yeah, I need a cigarette. Uh, and an ambulance. So, you know, our medical tra- our medical training was limited back then. I, you know, we knew CPR, we had uh, oxygen on the truck and stuff. Um, we gave him a cigarette. He lit it up and uh, um, we kind of, as we were setting him up, uh, basically uh, the other fireman said, well, let's see, because uh, he was complaining about his back hurting. And uh, as we set him up, uh, we lifted his shirt up. You could look like a little pimple sticking out on his back. And the fireman put his thumb on it and kind of rubbed it. And uh, the ice pick popped through. And the blood blood started dripping out. So mm, that kind of spurred me on to, uh, you know, think about. And I went and became an EMT because I wanted to have some more medical training um on that uh in because i thought man i i could maybe have done something else for him you know something better for so him. that was something you did on your time. own that wasn't uh, the department didn't embrace ems from that standpoint what, no, what did they ultimately uh, back then they what yeah back then they they, they kind of didn't uh really have that program going you know and i i went ahead and did that and then um we didn't have any in-house training the recertification. So I had to go back every two years back then to refresh, retest. Uh, and I've actually kept my uh, EMT since 1974 all the way up to now. It's still current up to next year. Oh, always, always have a B plan. That was my philosophy. I still got my paramedic as well. So yeah. um, what about any other calls? I know, I know well, the one the, big the one guy live? you want to talk about. Um, unfortunately he didn't, uh, because, uh, back then the, uh, Charleston County EMS mm-hmm. wasn't in existence at that time. And, uh, what carried, uh, people to the hospital was, uh, police department crash wagon, uh, cause the fire department did away with their ambulance service, uh, maybe about five years prior. And, uh, the police department picked it up. Well, we loaded the guy onto a gurney. It was kind of like grab and go type uh, service and uh, rushed into the emergency room, which was Roper uh, right. Hospital was the emergency room at the time. And uh, they went inside and we were actually standing outside waiting for the battalion chief to come pick us up. And uh, one of the, uh, I think it was an orderly or, or male nurse came out and said, hey, that guy that y'all brought in uh, passed away. And I thought, well, Hallie was talking to us, you know, uh, and that and that was kind of the reason why I really went ahead and became that uh, more medical training for my my end. 
Well, that's what motivated you to go get EMT. Um, I know there's a, there's another fire that happened in Charleston that had an impact across the country. I know it. I know it um, kind of rippled down. I was at that time. I was involved in code development, and code enforcement, and we we certainly looked at the the Sofa Superstore fire as a as a, as a case study um, from a codes perspective as well as firefighting operations. Uh, I understand you were at that call as well. Um, I was. I was a battalion chief that uh, that day uh, on duty. Um, yeah, it was a tough day. Uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, Chief Thomas again, our uh, chief of the department. Uh, you know, he took a lot of criticism. You know, he was he was a he was a good chief. He was pretty aggressive uh, on some things. So. Um, that evening, we were supposed to have uh, what we call night drill. We had to do so many hours at night uh, with your companies. So I had brought, uh, I was in Battalion 5, and I had uh, Engine 13, Engine 7, and uh, uh, ladder uh, company there uh, at Engine 7's house uh, getting ready to start night drill. And when that alarm came in, uh, I actually uh, told... Uh, engine 13 who was with i said i need for you to go ahead and head back to your station uh because i knew that we were gonna have to fill in spots uh from the initial call and uh uh, the battalion chief who was on duty at there at the fire actually reported there was a small trash fire up against the building on the loading dock uh and requested the company to to back in or come to the rear so I kind of moved that way, uh, didn't run lights and sirens at first. Uh, and as it progressed, uh, uh, I arrived on scene, I'm going to say about 20, 20 minutes into it. Uh, we had a lot of things that were going on. Uh, engine company that was on Savannah Highway uh, was engine uh, 16. They had stretched into a hydrant down the street and then actually run out of a hose. And I, I pulled up next to the engine. The engineer was standing there frantically uh, saying, Chief, I'm out of hose. And I said, call another company, tell them, bring a couple sections to you to finish that relay. And I moved on down to, you know, see if I could help. Uh, actually, Chief Garvin and Chief Eights were on the scene uh, kind of handling things. And... When I got there, um, basically, when I came out, Chief Garvin was talking to the store manager and said there was still somebody in the building. And our dispatcher center also was saying that there was somebody on the phone was trapped in the building. Um, um, things that progressed, I, I grabbed some uh, firemen that were coming up on scene from uh, St. Andrews Fire Department. I didn't know him at the time other than by face and told him to come with me. We went around to the back of the building and uh, actually made a cut in the metal building and, and brought that gentleman out. How did, how did you know where and, he uh, was? I, you know, I, I'd seen, I'd heard report, read manager, reports that it was, you know, hey, cruising doing a search that I don't know if they did, they, they not get to him, but then he was pulled out through basically mm-hmm. the exterior wall of the building. And how did you know he yeah, was there? Uh, basically, Basically, what happened was the uh, manager actually came with uh, me and uh, the two uh, St. Andrews firefighters. And uh, at that time, like I said, I, did, I knew them by face, but I didn't know their names. Uh, 
One of them happened to be Marcus Bush now, who's moved on as a chief, uh, I think somewhere uh, on the East Coast somewhere now. He's a assistant chief of a department. Uh, I've lost contact with him, but uh, uh, had them come with me. I told him, said, get some irons, come with me. I picked up an axe that was laying on the uh, sidewalk uh, by the front door. And uh, as we went around the building, the I kept saying, is he in here or where, you know, pointing to the, uh, cause it was a kind of a storage, uh, warehouse against the back of a brick building. And it was kind of like a little, uh, cul-de-sac in. And, uh, actually, uh, he said he should be right in here. So I knocked on the wall with the ax and he banged back. So we made a cut, uh, initial cut, uh, I don't know. Adrenaline was going. So I made a cut and then the St. Andrews boy made a cut. We just made an L cut basically and enough room where the gentleman actually put, stuck his hand out with something in it. And I didn't realize what it was uh, at the time, but it, it turned out to be his cell phone and he stuck his face up, was all sutted up. And I said, get back in, get down on the floor, get as low as you can so we can finish making the cut to get you out. Well, he was in a hurry to come out. Uh, so he, so, he was uh, in we, the, he, I mean, the conditions in that space were pretty gnarly. It sounds like he was. Uh, it was. It was heavy uh, black uh, black smoke that was really uh, pushing out at the time. I knew it wasn't a, a good thing, um, a good position. And we finished, make, made, made a deeper cut to where we could bend the metal back. And uh, he came out and I directed to the, the two St. Andrews firemen to go ahead and take him around to the front uh, where I knew the EMS was uh, waiting. And uh, I kind of stayed back there for a couple of minutes, hollering out if there was anybody back there to come this way. Um, but again, I didn't hear anything, didn't see anything. Did so, you have any other, there were, were uh, there any other reports of civilians in the building at that point? Or you just, you were just. Um, not that I, not that I know of uh, at that time. But uh, later on, we found out that he was the only one that was left in the building other than our, our guys in there searching and uh, working on the fire. So uh, the fire progressed. What, uh, what went on then at the scene from your perspective? Don't make me uh, tear well, up here. We, we'll talk as much uh, as we about, can. Uh, you know, I, you know it, 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 it's worth talking about. Uh, I came back around to the front, and um, at that time, our, our uh, chief of our department, Chief Thomas, had arrived on the scene. And uh, we had a, one of our firemen uh, actually run and into a plate, the plate glass window, who was inside the building, uh, banged up against it. And uh, um, a couple of firemen kind of went into, he was uh, one window away from the front door, went in and got him out, uh, brought him out. And uh, Thomas at that time told me, I, I need for you to go around. Back then, uh, he said the loading bay side, which would have been the Delta side. We didn't use that terminology at that time. He said, I need for you to go around to the loading bay side. Don't let anybody go in the building and try to control the fire from there. And I acknowledged that and I started to walk down the parking lot towards that. And, uh, that's when the uh, building actually lit off, uh, 
pretty much uh, it was uh, a tough, tough moment because I knew that we knew that people yep. were in there. You know. well, we, we always hear the story of the Charleston Nine, uh, knowing that you lost, you guys lost, um, I think it was three, three officers and six firefighters or firefighter engineers. <clears throat> they were still in the building when, when it flashed and, uh, and they were trapped in the building. Uh, was, was, and I know there was an evacuation signal sounded by the chief at, at some point in there. Uh, did yes. anybody else get out? You mentioned that one firefighter that came up against the front window and they got him to the door. Did anybody else get out of that at that time? Uh, yes. Uh, um, Captain Mark Davis uh, actually came out with uh, Captain uh, Billy Concorn. Uh, both of those guys are retired. And Captain Mark Davis is now uh, the chief of uh, Lexington, uh, South Carolina. Uh, you know, he, from all reports that I hear and from him, everything, he's doing a fantastic job up there. Uh, I was sad that he left us, uh, you know, the Charleston Fire Department. He actually uh, left about a year or so before I retired. I was kind of kind of disappointed that he did leave, uh, but I knew some things that were going on. Uh, he had to go uh, and move on to better better things for him. But uh, yeah, he, they were in there and uh, they were actually kind of the last last to come out. And uh, again, uh, it's going to be secondhand information from Mark. I heard it from Mark. I heard it from Billy that uh, actually Mark had run, ran into Billy and said, I'm low on air. And uh, Billy uh, said, well, I'll take you out. I know how to get out. I can carry you out. And uh, Billy always tells it says Mark reached for his mask because he was out of air. And uh, Billy said, "Don't pull my mask, or you know, I'll leave you if you do." Basically, Follow me, uh, but don't take my mask. I don't think they'll acknowledge that now, but that was some of the talk back then. And uh, he brought him on out, but he was they were the last two that right. I know of that right. came out of the building. Well, thankfully it wasn't 11 because that could have been the number 10 and 11 um, for sure. So kind of yeah. thinking back through what was the, the building had been built obviously. Uh, well, I, let me, let me, let me rephrase that. Was the building built originally to house uh, that type of occupancy materials. What was the building's original purpose? Grocery. The original store. building was a grocery store. A grocery store. It was a piggly wiggly, as far as I remember. Um, you know, it kind of that kind of went vacant, and other things had moved in. Then the Sulphur Superstore uh, kind of bought that uh, building. They upgraded it, uh, did some uh, uh, work on it, actually built a big metal uh, warehouse behind it and a uh, maintenance shop uh, on there, uh, right there by the loading bay. It was, uh, it had been added on, you know, uh, throughout the years. Uh, different things had been in there prior to that. So during the, uh, and, and Part of the reason I'm asking is the work I do for the foundation now is geared to um, examining and focusing in on life safety initiatives 14 and 15, which is education and codes and standards. The notion being that um, 
code standards, effective public education, not only benefit the public, but their risk reduction uh, areas for firefighters. And let's face it, most firefighters don't relish getting up and doing code work and things like that. Um, It's just not the sexy part of the fire service that we're all accustomed to. But so what we're trying to drive home is case studies and, and information And the most recent one we did, if you go back and look at the Boyd Street fire in L.A., that documentary has come out. And, of course, the the trailer on that basically is the the ladder and the the flames enveloping. There are 11 or I think there was 12 guys that 12 guys and gals that were injured. Point being that building um, was had illegal storage. Um, The building was not designed. Uh, not equipped with appropriate um, fire suppression and, and equipment. And so my, where I go back to Charleston as a grocery store, you, you know, if that building were built back in the 60s and 70s era time frame, maybe even earlier, it wouldn't have been required to have any sprinkler or fire alarm. Uh, no, um, not, I kind of, yeah. now this is my take on what uh, things were. When I first went in the Charleston Fire Department, we had an inspection bureau. It was tied to the fire department. Um, a lot of the guys were uh, older uh, firefighters, older captains who were coming off the line, actually would go in and go into the uh, fire marshal's office and, and do that. And they had certain districts uh, on that. And again, from my perspective, we lost that uh through budget cuts, through things, and not through uh, anything of our, right. our chief, uh, our departments at that time, but it was just kind of a thing. Hey, the building code department does the same thing as what the fire department is doing. Why cannot the building code department take over the fire uh, code enforcement? Did that happen prior uh, to yeah. the sofa superstore? So that was yeah, oh yeah, that happened prior to that. And we lost a... Uh, all those inspectors, uh, some of them retired. Uh, we had a couple of uh, people that come off the line. Some of them went into our dispatcher center. Uh, we had our own dispatcher center. And uh, basically all, all we had was uh, a couple of guys who were uh, now the uh, fire investigators uh, that would look for origin and cause. Uh, on that. So all the building code now was done by the building code department. Not to say that they did a a bad job or anything, but we just didn't have that uh, tie with the fire department. uh, Right. That building went through what would be basically a change of change of use. It went from a mercantile. I'm I'm assuming it was a mercantile and went to a storage an S2 storage when it was, it's interesting as to whether or not, the code at the time called for sprinklers and fire alarm or whether it was not called for and, and how that, and that's, that's kind of one always it's in the back of my head when I look at other buildings and other fires across the country is, you know, we have this notion of grandfathering and how all that works. And if somebody's not on top of that with especially a change of use um, it's just a recipe for disaster. So, and, uh, and I think I agree. I agree, and I think that's where what happened happened with us. That uh, you know, it just kind of uh, 
you know, grandfathered in, you know, hey, you got this, it, you know, it's already there. You know, they just added on to it and uh, permits were just right. signed off on, basically. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of, that that's my perspective, what I, um, you know, right. think that uh, occurred at that time. Now, I may be 100% wrong, but it just seems that uh, on my perspective from the fire well, two side, things that's that, um, well, that and the fact that um, we still see um, code enforcement prevention is kind of that first area you want to cut that in education. I know Robbie went through public education, um, you know, the, the loss of a position in public ed, you know, back when he and I were fire marshals together in Virginia. Um, I fought the same battles. Um, seemed like it always boiled down to that budget hearing at that last moment, you could make that final last appeal and they would decide to, you know, to retain the position, but it was just a fight every year. And, to me in our fire service today with so many plastics and, you know, the lithium battery issues then all the other stuff, it's just, you know, I fear for today's modern firefighter as much as the public um, in terms of rapid fire growth and <laughs> all the toxins. So. Yeah. And that, that's something that, you know, I'm uh, out there at Folly and uh, also when I was with the city, we talked about, you know, things have uh, changed uh, from actually when I first joined. You know, you could have a, a room on fire and it would, you know, be 20 minutes in before it ever uh, got to where it was fully involved. Uh, nowadays, uh, you know, less than three to five minutes and, you you know, you're in the danger of a yeah, flash. Um, I try to get that across to some of the younger guys that I have out there, uh, education-wise, uh I also did a training program on uh, solar uh, panels, uh, energy, also electric vehicles. Those things are becoming uh, major things uh, people are adding to their house. Uh, you know, it's endangering uh, sure. not only them, but us as well, if they, they do have a fire. Um, you know, education is, uh, you know, very important uh, for guys to keep up. Uh, you know, my father... When I first went on the job, uh, gave me some good advice. He said, if they offer you any classes at any time, he said, even if you don't think you can pass it, you take it. He said, because you'll at least get something out of it and uh, always continue to do that. And I kind of kind of lived to that philosophy. Uh, as I got older and I became a officer, uh, some classes I was worried about taking uh, with my guys because I thought, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the captain or I'm the battalion chief. I can at least make a hundred, you know, are these guys are going to look down on me? Yeah. Well, guess what? Uh, I'm not in the, you know, top of the class. Uh, I never have been. I always tell my kids I was third in my class all the time. That's the C category, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, you learn something, you gain that knowledge, and uh, it helps uh, put that extra tools, so to speak, in the toolbox uh, to help you. You talk about gaining knowledge, and uh, I know Keith Brower's department in Loudoun and, and mine in Chesterfield, we had incidents where, uh, in, in our case, we lost a firefighter, Bradley McNear, from, in a vehicle accident. And I know Keith had a pretty significant uh, fire up at Meadowwood where he almost lost uh, a whole Four. engine crew yep. in a fire. Um, 
four people. And, 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 and I know our departments learned from that and we, we made and implemented changes to keep that sort of thing from happening again in the future. I can only imagine the kind of impact losing nine firefighters at an incident like this would have had on, on any department. Uh, what can you talk about from the standpoint of how Charleston fire department changed after the loss of the nine in the superstore? Well, we had a lot of changes and, uh, they were a lot of, uh, good changes. There were some things that, uh, you know, my opinion didn't need to go away. Uh, and some of that was our, our tradition, uh, things that didn't have to do anything with safety or anything. But, uh, uh when chief Carr came in, uh, I'm gonna, I even go back to even chief Thomas, uh, he actually went off, uh, on a trip to New York. Uh, came back uh, and and we actually put repeaters in uh, all of our chief's vehicles. He saw the, a need for that. We did uh, started doing uh, more of uh, high-rise drills uh, uh, in the city uh, under Chief Thomas, uh, basically. And then, again, our fire, Chief Carr came in. Uh, I'm going to tell you that uh, he opened up a lot of people's eyes, uh, seeing that, you know, Hey, we're not just by ourselves. You know, we need to have that kind of uh, outside look uh, on there and, uh, you know, put a lot of programs uh, that were actually already started uh, that uh, our review panel had already issued or uh, a report. Chief Thomas had already kind of uh, initiated some of it. Chief Card enhanced that and moved that forward. Uh, made a, made a big difference, uh, on some of the th aspects of what we do as a department. Were they, were they typically operational changes or were they cha training changes or policy? What, what were some of the big, uh, you know, actually, uh, all three of those things, uh, operational changes, uh, myself included, the resistance was, uh, we actually went to a stationary, uh, command, uh, program and uh most uh most of the guys my age and everything said hey we need to be we need to go around we need to be there where the action is so we can see what's going on uh type thing uh so chief Carr actually instituted that uh command system uh actually put us through a blue card uh training uh and i i I'm going to say I was a guinea pig of that. Uh, you know, uh, they, they actually told me, hey, we want you to take this program and see what you think of it. And, so you were uh, the guinea pig. Yeah. And I, actually, uh, unfortunately, the city's computers actually looked at it as a threat. So every, I would be in it for maybe about 15, 20 minutes, and it would shut down. So when I went back to it, I'd have to start again at the beginning. Um so it was a little frustrating at first. Uh, plus, I had uh, again, uh, you know, things that were happening after our fire. Uh, a lot of, uh, I'll admit, a lot of mental, mental things. Uh, a lot of stress. Uh, yeah, that's that's a whole other a whole other topic. I uh, think we get into. I just um, just several months ago saw. Um, a program by a guy who was in Charleston at the time, Travis Howells, who's out talking about his post-traumatic purpose. David, yeah, David Griffin has gone around the country. 
we actually had we actually had David come talk to um, our officer candidate school in Loudoun County when he was he was getting started on the road. And David actually at that uh, Sofa Superstore fire was actually uh, the driver, uh, third driver at that time is what we call assistant engineer, uh, driving uh, engine eleven at, at that time and. Uh, you know, so he's moved up and he's now a deputy chief with our department. He uh, was with the, the department. Yeah. I'm not there anymore, but, sure. uh, you know, I still consider it home. Uh, I'd still call it my place. Uh, you know, uh, even though I, uh, my wife says it's time to let your son have his <laughs> time in the field instead of you going back. And, but I, it's, it's just hard to step away. It's like almost like a, a divorce oh, yeah. really, uh, leaving it uh yeah but yeah it, uh we had a lot of good changes a lot of good things uh that occurred um a lot of training came out of that uh um, i will say years ago when i first went in uh i had a captain tell me this i've never seen a book put out a fire yeah he said it's all we you all have to get in and get it out you know, do the hard work uh, on that. So um, training was, I, I'm going to say, not a, a major focus back then. And then when uh, uh, Chief Carr came in, it became really a front uh, front burner type thing uh, where guys were now uh, getting uh, going to the training classes, getting uh, cert- certifications, uh and I, I guess I was fortunate at the time. I had already taken uh, some uh, courses and was an adjunct instructor actually for uh, the fire academy. So when it came time to take those classes, I was like, I'll go sit in them, but I'm already certified. Uh, and I felt that I had to do that as uh, I moved up as the assistant chief, uh, you know, at that time. And I felt that it showed the people on the job that, hey, the chief officer is taking this That's class. It's, the chief, it's, it's it must be you. important. It's important for them, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, I was there for that. Well, it's clear that uh, that fire was, uh, what, 2007. So that makes it, what, uh, 16, 17 years ago now, yeah. 16 and a half years ago. Yeah. And it's still in the front of a lot of people's mind. I see, you know, just talking to you, it, it certainly seems like it was yesterday to you, I bet. Um did a yeah. did a podcast with a group of guys in Petersburg, Virginia, uh, where uh, Mike Golf was killed, and one of the guys quoted there. It's it, it 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 he said it seems like yesterday for a lot of people, but for us it was yesterday. It's it, it's right there in their mind all the time. Yeah, um, it's not a day that doesn't go by. Uh, don't think about those right. guys. I'm sure that I'm day. Sure. And the same with the department. Uh, uh, when that fire occurred, I had uh, actually 30, 33 years roughly on the job at the time. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Chief, this is your time to go. You should go, you know, uh, leave. But my thought at the time was, and it still is, you know, thought was, uh, I needed to stay, uh, not only for my mental well-being, but uh, for the guys on the department. I needed to stay and uh, 
help them through their hard times and actually got criticized. Uh, I would show up uh, as an assistant chief, show up to stations, you know, sit around and talk and everything. And before I left, I'd always tell them a joke. And some of them were salty at the time. I'd say, if anybody's offended, let me know. I'll never tell another one. Um, I actually was called down about that. They said, chief officers shouldn't do that. And uh, uh, my response was, I can see the stress that these guys are going through. And if I told that joke and it took that stress away just for that second, it was worth it. Yeah. It was worth it. There you go. We've been at it a, a little over an hour now, and uh, I always ask this question of particularly the, the senior folks, I won't call you old, but the senior folks who, who, who come on, um, you know, what, what piece of advice do you, would you give uh, to that recruit firefighter coming out of recruit school today? Um, you've got 44 years in Charleston, another maybe a half dozen in Foley Beach, uh, you know, almost 50 years of a career in the fire service, obviously very successful. What, what piece of advice do you think you would give that recruit school uh, as they're entering their career? Hmm. That's a pretty good question. I would say, uh, you know, training is very important. Uh, you know, uh, you don't win the Super Bowl by not training. Uh, those uh, professionals uh, train uh, every week uh, for uh, what may happen. Uh, so training is uh, important. Anytime they offer you anything, especially if it's free, it doesn't cost you anything, uh, take it. Um Enjoy the camaraderie of uh, the guys in the department because they're actually going to be a part of your life for the rest of your life. Um, there's guys that when I came in 1973, uh, I'm still friends with. Uh, you know, I'm, I still call them. Still, We still talk. Um, it's going to be a part of your life. That uh, Enjoy it. You're going to have some ups and downs, but uh, the job is, uh, I know it sounds cliche that uh, you know it's one of the best jobs in the world uh i can honestly say that uh majority of my career i enjoyed uh going to work uh, you know after the fire there were some times that i didn't but uh i enjoyed what i did and i still enjoy what i do uh helping people uh you'll find that that is really not a job it's a it's a calling it's a profession that uh you can be proud of at the end of the day right. well congratulations on a long career and many more years or as many years as you'd like to to stay in the job keith brower no uh, i any other I've questions had the, had the pleasure of seeing closer? and visiting with chief lloyd um i go up for the um memorial service every um june 18th uh, which is a brief service but it's yes. always done with the utmost respect to the family and the and the fire department does a does a tremendous job with that, and of course this year, no, well, I guess last year is when the dedication of Station Eleven. If you haven't seen that, Robbie, it's it's amazing. the 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 new station overlooks the memorial site, but it has nine vertical windows overseeing the uh, the memorial gardens as as a testament. So um, I got to go to that and. Uh, you know, see Chief Lloyd and, you know, God willing, I will see you in, in June, if not, if not before. It's always just a nice little visit up to Charleston and, 
have so much respect for what the department has, has done. Uh, chief Carr was the, was the chief in Montgomery County, Maryland, across the river from Loudoun County. And he was actually one of my mentors yes, sir. as I was coming along. Um, we were trying to get our fledgling um, health and safety course, health and safety program off the, off the, off the ground. And uh, he was very instrumental in helping me um, get my bearings on, on things to do. So when, uh, when he left to go to Charleston, we, we felt it in the Nova region and the D.C. area. Um, but I had visited him once down here. I understand he had family down here, family ties down here of some type that, that drew him down here amongst his, his skill set. But, um, yeah, he was, uh, you know, I was sad to see the things that happened to him. Very sad. But, uh, yeah. Uh, we, yeah, we were to, uh, you know, we, uh, I'll say I, I was, proud that he he came in yep. he seemed to be the right fit for us at the time uh on there and uh unfortunately right. we only had him right. for uh, two and a half three years uh, right uh before he but uh, had to I'm, I'm just uh, glad that yeah. that we're uh, as well as the foundation you had uh, able to continue you know the, the brief the, the very little support for that but it's important to be there for that i guess it's and, and i always try and talk to the mayor and stress to him from the standpoint of, you know, firefighter safety and give your fire department the money. <laughs> That's what I try and tell folks, give them the money. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that was, that was one of the things that, uh, I don't say really came out of that. Uh, uh, we were always, uh, I robbed of, uh, you know, money. Uh, I'm going to say rob is not a good word. We were, uh, held really lean. Little priority and, from a funding uh, standpoint. It's okay, yeah. Yes. And and when that fire occurred, uh, it kind of opened up the, the city, uh, opened up the, you know, hey, y'all need this. We're going to give you this. Uh, they, they really uh, came forward. The mayor, Mayor Riley at the time, really stepped up to the plate, came forward uh, with a, a lot of uh, resources for us. So, Again, at, at first, I uh, was kind of uh, kind of put off because, hey, we didn't have this before. Now we got an open checkbook. Let's uh, let's get some things that we really need. Let's get the things. And Chief Carr actually uh, kind of marshaled that in, brought that in, saying, "Hey, we need this training. We need this type of equipment. We need uh, to get our guys on this program." Yeah, uh, and it really really did pay off. Yeah, it's unfortunate. That, uh took the lives of nine firefighters to, to get them to re realize that. But um, I guess looking for that silver lining somewhere, there's, there's a, there's a plus for it. Moving yeah. forward. Well, chief Raymond Lloyd currently from Folly beach, uh, South Carolina, formerly from Charleston and part of the, the legacy that is the Charleston fire department being five generations now involved in that department. I, I appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing your stories in your time with us today and uh, good luck in yep. Folly Beach. I hope to see you soon. All right, yes, sir. Take care. Thank y'all. And y'all stay safe. Chief Lloyd's now left the room and uh, Keith Brower and I are going to talk a little bit more about it because of the impacts of uh, the Superstore fire go long, but long beyond uh, just the kind of impacts that, you know, we, we heard from uh, Chief Lloyd, you know, I ran into uh, 
Travis Howells a couple of weeks ago. Um, you, and hearing him speak, he was there and he pulled some of his friends out of that building. Uh, and the, the emotional toll is still there for those guys. But uh, some, of the, some of the things that have impacted our jobs, yours and mine, at least what we were code guys uh, for years, was the code stuff that came out of that. And I think that's an important piece to look at too because – because of the history that went on with Charleston yeah. before the fire and after. So I uh, just want to chat about that for a few minutes. What, what do you think uh, What do you think were some of the biggest things that came out of that on the code side of the world? You know, we talked about the, the operational stuff, and there's NIST reports, there's OSHA reports, there's the local report, and there's all kinds of information about the tactics and strategy that yeah. was used there. And a lot of stuff did come out of that, but uh, – the code piece is not talked about as much. What do you think was the were some of the big things that came out of that? Well, I think that um, on a nationwide basis, we uh, we've recently heard from ICC and FEMA on the the uh, the lack of code enforcement or lack of adopted codes across the country, and um, you know through the U.S. Fire Administration's efforts now. Part of that strategic plan is going to be to pursue adoption, more adoption across the country. And I think that that's, that's kind of the root issue that I think that I have felt um, all along um, was just that, that state and localities haven't um, adopted or taken, taken the fire code, fire prevention codes and related building code features uh, seriously, and I, and I think that it's 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 point points out that these issues it's almost like we're the stepchild um, in many respects when it comes to to the fire prevention world. I think what we learned yeah. from Charleston through uh, Chief Lloyd that was confirmed was that the fire department had been you know taken out and removed from the um, uh, code enforcement building code process. Um, I don't know the inner workings in Charleston. I don't know what they were. I'm still not clear on what they what they are. But the bottom line is we saw that this building had been added onto in the latter years prior to the fire without permits. And the fire department's role was relegated to uh, more of just cursory visits and pre-plans. And I think that um, the, the more I look at um, what's going on across the across the country um, we're, to me we're losing ground on codes and we've got to have more of an influence um, you know in the adoption and, and, and enforcement process it's just data is proving that uh, I believe we're losing ground um, in the enforcement world and nothing against building officials but they're they're not trained um, and certified in many cases in fire related issues and I, 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 you know, I wouldn't go to a dentist to have uh, to get a haircut, you know, or <laughs> or a haircut to get your teeth fixed. Yeah, or right. To get your so teeth yeah, yeah. And I, you know, we, I know you probably dealt with it in Loud, and I know I um, kind of I call it battled against it in my time in Chesterfield. Was it, it purely thinking about it from a business standpoint and and the efficiencies and economies of scale for the unaware of the types of inspections that go on in the in the focus you know to the business person i've got you know 10 inspectors over here that are enforcing the code and 10 inspectors over here that are enforcing the code maybe i could do the same type of code enforcement with seven people instead of 10 
And now I've got three fewer FTEs in the inspections and I can put them in schools or police officers or what, wherever they need to be. So from that standpoint, at least from the business end of things, it makes certain degrees of sense. But like you said, that, that building code official, his concern is let's get that building constructed into code today. After that CFO is issued, their you know, worry, authority, for the most part, fades off. And then it becomes kind of a property maintenance issue. And there's not really a lot of people out there today, with the exception of Florida, doing property maintenance for structural and fire safety. And, the, and even in Florida, they're, talk, they're doing high-rise stuff because of the, the collapse they had a, a couple of years ago. So, uh, I mean, I got that. And I, I had a conversation with our county administrator. This was years ago when there was an effort to take away uh, what we had in our fire marshal's office of those construction plans reviewers for fire protection systems and, and fire protection related stuff. And, you know, I had a conversation with the county administrator then. I said, you know, the building official is responsible for that building until it hits C of O, which may be a year, maybe 18 months while it's under construction. Then the fire official is responsible for it for the next 30 or 50 or 100 years or however long it lives. And his comment was, well, maybe the building official ought to work for you. And I'm like, well, there's, there's a lot, there's some, that might be an interesting discussion too. We never went any further than that, but, um, you know, as I always thought of it as that was our opportunity to get into that building or our, the, the Royal, we, if you will, the fire department's ability to get into that building, to understand, uh, what the fire protection systems were in that building and how it could impact us operationally. And I think having our fire plans reviewers, which really only focused on fire protection systems, having them in the fire department had a better connection with even the operational people could, because I always encourage those plans reviewers when they were in the field and had projects going up out of the ground to get with that local fire company and have them come out for a tour, understand what was being designed into the building. We had a number of large industrial complexes that came along like um, Amazon and a couple of those other big places where the, the fire companies were actually engaged with the plans review staff understanding how that how, the, how those systems were built and how those would impact them if they had to respond there for a fire so um i i think you're right that whole when charleston i don't want to say let go but when the fire inspectors went to the building officials office they lost that call it influence call it awareness um of how the fire reacts in that built environment so I, I tend to yeah. agree with you. Yeah. Well, and I think another short-sighted um, philosophy is uh, I, I understand the importance of getting the building um, CO'd, and, and I understand the importance of that business, you know, getting up and running, not only for the business people, but they're, you know, they need to, they're hiring employees. Employees are expected to um, get paid so they can buy groceries and make their mortgage payments uh, so the building can provide a tax revenue source. So I understand clearly the, the need to get that building CO'd. And, but the problem is if there's no update maintenance um, to, to, those, to those fire prevention components or if there's no ongoing enforcement and you do have a fire, uh, particularly with a large business, now you now you look look at that look what happens to that revenue that sought after revenue is gone, uh, tax base you know suffers, um, employees are laid off the business may not get back up on its feet, and so I I don't think we've successfully 
um, explain those kind of, and I'll use the word liabilities, not in a legal sense, but it's a, a financial liability to the community. It's a risk. It's a big um, risk, yeah. When, when we have, you know, buildings that are allowed to go uninspected and, and systems to be uh, maintained, when you, when you put that on the building owner, it's going to be probably a, <laughs> probably a skewed type of a bell curve. I mean, some business owners are going to take responsibility. Others are not. You know, I've been in buildings that are, have been built in the 1800s. They have sprinkler systems or, or whatever, um, and they're part of the historical structure of communities. But are the, are the systems being inspected? Are, you know, does that sprinkler, really, sprinkler system really work? Um, do those standpipes really, you know, really support, you know, modern, you know, fire department pressures and things like that? If they're just left to their own devices, I think Murphy's Law tends to kick in. Um, and it's going to, or, or also did, did, um, did that, was the system designed for one level of hazard or risk and then the business changed and the occupancy changed. And now instead of having, you know, ordinary hazards, now we've got more higher heat release rate type of materials in there we've got chemicals higher higher combustible levels of materials and and that system is no longer effective to that we've had that argument with uh with fireworks right. for, for years and how much are the sprinkler systems in these retail establishments adequate to suppress a fire that re- that is involved in fireworks and that the jury's still out on that one to be quite honest but uh so you know, it, it is that long-term piece that um, you know what happens to the building and it's an environment. It's that ecosystem. NFPA yes. always talks about is that fire and life safety ecosystem. You've got to have an educated workforce. It's an investment in safety, you know, compliance with the code and use of modern building codes. All kind of play right. into that. And and I think there's, um, I think there's hope with um, the efforts of of USFA and this plan. I, I think there's also, and I think this is one of the things we're going to talk about at Vision 2020 and Strategy 5 as we, as we move forward into that, um, some suggestions that came from, from you and others uh, that we need, to build, we need to build more alliances with um, architects, um, do more training for architects, do more training for uh, the, the, the government officials, Frankly, uh, I know Vision 2020 is working on a, a CRR for government officials uh, program because ultimately, who makes policy? Who's responsible for policy? Who's responsible for overall community uh, quality of life? It's going to be those elected officials and appointed uh, administrators that we work for um, that ultimately have the responsibility to, to, um, to look out. So. You know, I think there's I think there's hope. Um, the legal community, um, there's the organization for civil. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's, uh, there's a, there is a legal or, uh, organization of for attorneys out there that someone suggested we need to better align with. Just to explain at the municipal level, there's a risk here by not having these buildings either follow code or, or you know you know adhere to codes or that we have processes that are that are insufficient that create that create liability um you know and, and i i keep going back that uh, one of these days there's we're going to see a product liability suit whether it's for for buildings that are built where sprinklers are required in the model code and they've been written out 
are made voluntary and somebody dies, I think, you know, we're going to see potentially what happened to the tobacco industry um, over a period of years. They, they were always, you know, perceived to be immune. Um, but look what's happened. So I, I think there's a lot of synergy in trying to um, improve our code adoption uh, and code enforcement uh, procedures. And I, and I think we now have national emphasis to do this. I've just you know, got my fingers crossed that we can sustain that um, as, as we go on. Yeah, that, uh, that civil liability piece is interesting. That's one of the, um, uh, when I was on a board uh, in Virginia, um, a citizen came forward and was, was kind of promoting sprinklers for an, um, a senior seniors community. And his, his point was his neighbor had a fire it put him at risk, um, and he knew sprinklers were gonna, were, would eliminate that risk. And uh, he came to the board and said, uh, you know, basically, what, to what level of civil liability are you personally and professionally held accountable to if you've removed this nationally recognized model code provision that says buildings should be sprinklered? And uh, that got a lot of con conversation going amongst the board later in that meeting, and, and it was pretty interesting to hear the the chatter around that. And I think that as unfortunate as it is, there's going to have to be that one incident that hurts a lot of people, kills the right person before somebody starts raising that question again. And um, I forget who it was. Monty uh, said, you know, the, the fire and building codes are built upon the bodies and bloods of our fellow man. And that's kind of truly makes sense of it takes, it takes something like the, the sofa superstore fire to raise awareness and that's one of the things that we i saw as i was involved in the icc co-development process you know 6 12 18 months down the road where that threshold for sprinkling buildings that contained upholstered furniture went from i think it was twelve thousand square foot at right. the time it went to zero now, some might argue that that was a lot of overkill because if you've got one piece of furniture offered for sale in a 7-eleven that's uh is it to use an obs obs um, a really bizarre kind of analogy, then that building offers upholstered furniture for sale. Therefore, it has to be sprinkled. That's probably a little bit overkill. I think sure. they've balanced that out since then. But uh, the, the, the that building, you mentioned that that building was added onto, and it was actually added onto right. three times legally, legally yes. with permits. They, they added uh, a west showroom and an east showroom to the original Piggly Wiggly. And in that, they go back to the building officials mindset and I don't know if this was the case or not but they're looking at that addition as a building they're not taking into account that it's being built as a part of this other building that ultimately I think they went up with over 30,000 square feet of of retail space that was mm -hmm. under one roof that was separated by fire roll-up doors but to your point of maintaining them uh, I, I, there were six total between the main in the two winged showrooms, um, some of them didn't activate. So they were held open either by furniture or the, the systems didn't work. Therefore, that allowed the fire to spread from wing to wing to main building or however the fire went. But uh, the, the other building that was built to the rear was built um, and didn't require sprinklers and didn't require any fire protection devices between the two because there was a space there. Then what happened in the years after that were, was they got connected by wood frame buildings and wood frame structures that now became the fire conduit from where it started in a loading dock 
because the back of the main building didn't have a rated wall or a rated door that allowed the fire to get into the to the showroom and that's where that's where those guys were when the when the yeah. big flashover occurred so uh, you know again if the fire department had been involved in plans review would they have caught that or would they have kind of addressed that who knows but um, there is one quote from uh, I think it was called the phase two report that um, was pretty interesting to me it said the annual fire inspection program for commercial occupancies was discontinued after the 1998 inspection occurred the Charleston fire code was then amended in 2001 that removed a mandatory requirement for inspections in mercantile occupancies the fire department had conducted a free pre-fire planning and familiarization visit during the these years and these visits did not involve code enforcement activities and i think that's another point where it's important that we at least company officers understand what building construction is and why understanding building construction in the code is there not that they're code experts but they ought to see a flag that we've got hey we've got these non-combustible buildings that are connected with wood frame structures that right. doesn't make sense and raising that to the level of some inspection office and say hey is this right or wrong does it meet code maybe they well and i think to, to the point that um to the to the recruit firefighter and to the to the veteran firefighter and to the officer candidate, um, getting them more engaged in the in the code uh, code training, community risk reduction overall community risk reduction training, um, I, I think that's a big ticket item. Um, let's face it, um, you know, the, the the youngest to the newest recruit is still waiting to go on that first big fire, and that's the focus and i get that i've been there a long time ago but you know i think we've all been there we understand that but i think we've got to be more disciplined into training folks um you know in the in the community risk reduction aspects and i think part two of that is um getting firefighters um more engaged and um in the code process itself uh, whether it's um putting them on uh, committees um, you know, we've got to start at the grassroots level to develop that, to develop that uh, level of education, uh, and which will then spur awareness, I think, when you're going into a building, um, you have a better idea. Um, you know, I, it's just we're, just, we're just so far behind, I think. And I, I do believe, and I don't want to speak for the IAFF, but I believe there's a there's a program that they're an initiative uh, that, that they're getting ready to, to move forward on to do just that to get firefighters more embracing uh, codes and prevention um, as a matter of self survival, uh, adding that to the to the life safety you know curriculum for ourselves. Yeah, and I think um, yeah you you mentioned I think that one of the one of the few if not the only non-code nerd firefighter I've ever seen involved in the um, code development process and he was up to his eyeballs yeah. and it was Sean DeCrane. Uh, he was in Cleveland. He's actually been on this podcast before. I talked to him for a while about how he got involved in the code development process, but he uh, he was he was not a code nerd, but he, he brought a lot of passion to it about what what the impacts of these codes codes are and were to the on the street firefighter. And he's recently left UL and is now back with the IAFF and, and working with them on code stuff. So yeah, you're right. I think that I think he's got some good stuff coming out soon uh, around that uh, space as well. So that's positive for sure. Uh, 
Um, you know, what else can we can we chat about? You know, we talked. You know, I mean, we can beat that beat the code horse to death, and um, and kind of we'll, while we probably have solved many of the world's problems sitting around a uh, sitting around a, a pub having a beverage or two with a lot of different people. What's uh, in, you mentioned Vision 2020 and the, the Strategy 5 group, and the other thing strategy, uh, Vision 2020 has been trying to do is get some some of these community risk reduction, whether it's code, public education, uh, inspections, into the frontline firefighters training requirements through NFPA's pro-qual right. standards. Um, that, that, that was tried at the last cycle. It, it failed. They're going to I think maybe try it again in a different form or a different standard. Yeah. Um, but what do you think? The, what do you think the fix is there? I mean, I don't. I, I, I kind of got some ideas, but how do we get? How do we get that first line off fire officer to understand what this? Well, I think short of is? putting it in the um, in the ProQual standards, uh, which I do believe you'll see, you know, continuing efforts to do that. Um, you know there are there are other programs out there that or localities could just simply say this is this is going to become part of our promotional process or this is going to become part of our recruit training. Uh, IFSTA now has you know a, a series of of community risk reduction uh, programs, essentials of community risk reduction, and others that can and can be taken online without adding additional time to recruit training, which I know is always an issue. Um, and and you know whether it's a whether it's a state only school state level school some some folks some jurisdictions don't have re- local training centers and they have to send their folks to South Carolina for example since sends all of its firefighters to Columbia for the state school um, you know so so adding adding time to those types of programs for example might might be an interference um, but doing programs online such as what IFSTA offers. Is a is a different way of at least opening that door into the into the into the uh, community risk reduction code enforcement world. So I think that yeah. you know moving forward in the professional qualification standards, but also utilizing resources that are uh, presently out there that that can be done to, to to raise that awareness. And I think making that mandated at certain levels in the organization, whether it's an officer promotional standard, you have to have the certificate that you've you know gone through this program um so yeah there are, i know uh, there are some departments that actually require their officers yes. to be certified fire inspectors go through yeah. the full 1031 yeah. and again that's you know, I, I think that's awesome that's a heavy that lift a, for heavy a lot lift. of departments um, but um, you know uh the most rural of companies that that we're familiar with in 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 our experiences are just not going to have the resources to to do that right. but the vast majority of them uh, most likely have internet, and this could be a program, you know, an online program could be very easily um, required in a smaller, more rural department, even, you know, certainly volunteer departments. They run the same risk. Yep. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's wrap this present up and just I'll chat about um, Charleston, where are they now? And I, I've I pulled this information off of their department's website, so... Uh, Chief Lloyd was talking about how they kind of did away with all their prevention, their fire marshal's office, and went over to the building inspections. And then in 2010, uh, their fire marshal's office was restructured yep. or reconstituted. Uh, I think I think that was 
primarily as a reaction to the SOFA Superstore fire because that was one of the things that they talked about in their in the aftermath of, of code enforcement and not being in, in the fire service, not being involved in that piece. But today, uh, they, they in 2010, they moved fire inspections from the building inspections office back to the fire department. They have a chief fire marshal, three deputy fire marshals, and 10 assistant fire marshals, uh, which is a pretty good-sized staff for a, for yeah. a city of that size. Um, that, and they talk about they do new and existing inspections and plans review for new buildings as well as uh, existing right. buildings to do inspections. So, so hopefully, the, hopefully that has addressed those problems. I know there are a lot of other departments out there uh, that have limited to no uh, staff on their staff that does fire code. It's in another department or it's in another organization. Uh, but I think it's that integration and awareness uh, even even if it's a if if, if it's a that fire marshal stopping by the station saying hey guys just a heads up, the sprinkler system at such and such a business down the street's out of service. It's going to be out of service for a while. So if you run a call there, be aware that the, your strategy and tactics are going to have to change because now we don't we don't expect that right. system to operate. So. Right. Right. And I think our tactics are are improving generally, and the certainly the use of um, thermal imaging cameras. Uh, prior to entry, um, is is a is a relatively new trend, but it's 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 taken off, and the, the cost of cameras has come down. So, you know, even our size up um, procedures um, have been enhanced, and uh, you know, it, it's still upon us to to make that critical decision of go or no go, and um, that will always be a challenge. But I think you know, if if folks are aware of the uh, heat output um, and, and lessened flash over time. Uh, if they've been paying attention to UL and the research that's being done there, I think we stand a better chance of our firefighters, independent of, of whether the building's been inspected or not, of, of, of basically not accepting that risk. Um, yeah. You know, if, if the builder doesn't care, the owner doesn't care, they're basically saying, we don't care about you. And I, I think that's important for us to internalize and say, okay, we're going we're gonna to revert back to our best tactics and size up before we make entry into this building. And um, so, and, and the other thing we didn't touch on was they did have a rescue um, in the SOFA Superstore. And I don't know, and I don't know that the report brings out fully what, to what degree that altered their decisions. Uh, and clearly, we know that we've got to um, risk a lot to save a lot in, in, in that regard. So um, if that played into it, um, I, I get it. But we, we certainly, yeah. um, it's tragic that the, that the circumstances, the precursors to all of that led, led to that uh, massive flashover and those guys dying. Yep. Well, uh, I think you talked about it a little bit when uh, Chief Lloyd was on, but they do do a, rem yeah. a memorial every year. Uh, the city actually bought the property where the that store was, and there's a monument to, to those nine. Right, and they built the fire fire station uh, eleven is built there, right so. next to it. So um, right, we we won't forget that one. I can tell you that the the community, Amen. the fire department is not going to let that that be forgotten. Yeah. Good. Well, with that, let's wrap this up. Uh, I'm going to add this to the uh, to the conversation yeah. with uh, Chief Lloyd. Uh, for everybody who listens to the podcast, hey, thanks. Uh, appreciate all your comments. I got a, I know I've got a couple of people out there that um, 
have reached out to me about episodes with with people they know, and I'm I, I want to get on that. Uh, this thing called the day work job is getting in the way a little bit to do some of this, so uh, I'm going to try to work on that some this spring. But if anybody's uh, interested in helping support this podcast, go to patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast. Uh, you can email me with any ideas, suggestions, comments, uh, or smart remarks. Yeah, you can do that too. <laughs> uh, so you can send the smart remarks to uh, firehouselogbook at gmail.com. Uh, make sure you follow along on Twitter and Instagram. And I usually post up some pictures on Facebook as well when these episodes come out. So make sure you follow along there. And thanks to everybody. And thanks to Chief Brower for this kind of bonus episode, bonus time, uh, having getting a chance to sit down with another code nerd slash fire chief that uh, yeah. is of like mind and have that conversation. Yeah. So I appreciate the time. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Yeah, man. Yep. See you in sure. Columbia in a couple of weeks. Right.